The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, in March of this year, a 32-year-old British man travelled 320 kilometres north from his town of Bradford to Glasgow in Scotland, where he stabbed a man he'd never even met before. The case shocked Britain, and it opened up a discussion there about the importance and freedom to critique religious beliefs. Joining me on the line, I have now journalist, writer and lecturer Sonny Hundle, who recently penned an article outlining how, in his belief, laws against insulting a religious religion can actually do more harm than good. You're very welcome to The Right Hook, Sonny. Good afternoon, Tara. Now, you write extensively about the need to critique and discuss religious groups and practices. What was it about the incident that I just mentioned there in Glasgow that pushed the need to have this discussion, do you believe? Well, for me, that was just an indication of how Pakistan's poisonous religious politics were coming to the UK. But the point I was trying to make was that this is a problem not just in Pakistan and the fact that it's coming to the UK, but it's also becoming increasingly a problem in countries like India and elsewhere. And I was pointing out that actually if we want to, if we want freedom of religion, if we want freedom of thinking, expression and debate, then actually the freedom of Uh, The freedom to criticize religion is absolutely central to that. And a democracy cannot flourish when there are laws which prevent blasphemy. So you're talking about blasphemy laws. Explain a little bit more, though, first, Sonny, about uh, the situation as you see it in Pakistan and what it is that you're referring to that you believe is now spreading to Britain and other parts. Sure. So in Pakistan, uh, actually, as a result of colonial rule, uh, the British put in laws against blasphemy in the 1800s and Pakistan and India both inherited those laws. In Pakistan, the law is against uh, criticizing or insulting Islam specifically. And what they do is they designate and they use those laws. A lot of uh, mobs, a lot of uh, religious, hardline religious groups use those laws to not only exact revenge, but also uh, pick on smaller religious minorities. People get accused of uh, insulting religion all the time, sometimes even without any evidence. And then a mob, mob appears and people get killed sometimes. And there's been lots of cases like this. Uh, specifically aimed at Ahmadi Muslims, which are a minority in Pakistan, as well as Hindu Sikhs and Christians as well. Obviously, extreme examples maybe uh, of religious motivated attacks, but are are they becoming more common in the West? Well, yes, in some ways. So the the murder that you uh, mentioned at the beginning was inspired in the UK and what happened was that in 2011, a Pakistani uh, politician was murdered by his bodyguard for trying to stand up against these blasphemy laws. Um, and that guy who murdered him beca- became quite popular, popular in Pakistan specifically and across the world, uh, including the UK. So when he was uh, in prison, uh, when he was executed just earlier this year, There were uh, imams in the UK, in Glasgow, Bradford, other places who were praising him and saying this guy is a martyr, he should be defended, etc., etc. And in fact, currently there are imams touring the UK who have also praised him in the past. And we wrote about this, asking why the Home Office didn't um, stop these people from coming in. So my worry is, and this is not just a Muslim problem or a Pakistani problem, it's happening in in India too, where Christians are being persecuted, as well as other religious minorities, Muslims are being persecuted by the Hindu majority using the same blasphemy laws. But if you critique or air views, even if there's you know stereotypical views in in particular, sure, you will be accused of being a racist. No, I I think you have to separate the two. There is certainly people who stereotype religious groups, whether that be Jews, Muslims, uh, or other minorities. And that, to me, is not right. But what you should be able to do is criticize religious groups 
as well as religion itself, religious belief. And those are two separate things. And I know that a lot of people conflate those two, but I, do, I think it's important to separate the two out because actually criticizing religious groups and religious beliefs is central to a democracy and is important, whereas uh, stereotyping people from a specific religious group is not right, and I would call that racism. But does it not stoke the, the, the flames? Does it not put fuel on the fire? In other Absolutely. words, if, if, yeah, so, so therefore, is, that, is the point you're trying to make not really sort of baseless? Because the more conversation or critique that we have, the mm. more liable you are to being labelled uh, discriminatory or racist or, or whatever for airing a view. And then that, you know, as I said, puts fuel on the fire. So if you have radical elements or, or you have elements that are, are prone to violence, that will provoke them. I mean, sometimes it happens, but I think it's, it's, it's actually fairly straightforward to make the case to religious minorities and say, no, actually, you should be standing up for the right to insult your beliefs. And I've done this in the past. I was invited by a, an Islamic society in LSE. I went there and I said to them, look, actually, by, by the right to having, having the right to insult your religion, your prophet, if you if you want, is important because without that right, you do not have freedom to even practice your religion because Britain is a majority Christian country. And if we had blasphemy laws, then actually they would be used to persecute Muslims or persecute other religious minorities. So actually, it is there is a way of uh, pointing out to people that blasphemy laws work against them. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, you know, my mother is quite religious. She goes to the uh, temple on a regular basis. She does not like it when people um, are uh, insulting her religious beliefs. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to be able to tolerate that or at least just dismiss it. Because without that, if the government says we're going to ban this, then the impact it has is much worse especially when you allow religious groups to use these blasphemy laws or use this idea that people are insulting a religion to stoke up hatred and to stoke up controversies. I'm one of the uh, users, I suppose, of those blasphemy laws or, or people who pay attention to it would be the media. What about the role of media in this? I mean, I, I don't think the media helps, to be honest. Uh, just to give you a, a quick uh, recent example, Anjum Chaudhary was recently arrested, uh, as we all know, uh, you know, the, the hardline extre- Muslim preacher. And Anjum Chaudhry was given a platform far more by the media than he was given a platform by Muslims themselves. And actually, the media uses this quite regularly because, you know, he goes on air, he tries to stoke up hatred, he tries to say to people, look, these people are insulting your beliefs, these people don't like you, you should go over to Syria because this place is not uh, good for Muslims. And, you know, the likes of the BBC, uh, Newsnight, uh, Sky News, all these programs have used Anjum Chaudhry as a way for to boost their ratings and create a debate without actually showing to people, this, you know, that these people represent a very tiny minority. And in some cases, I've seen religious controversy stoked up by one person sitting in their room and claiming that they are an organization, mm. um, not just uh, not just in India and Pakistan, but even in the UK. So... It's a problem. I, I really feel that journalists should spend more time looking into these religious groups and saying, do these people have a significant backing or is it just someone trying to stoke up a controversy? Yeah, and I suppose you have to be cognizant of the of the, the keyboard warriors, you know, these anonymous uh, people behind a screen and, and using sort of the safety of that to stoke fires. We've been talking a lot about um, this in the context of Islam and, and Pakistan and to a lesser extent Britain. But what about here, say in Ireland, for example, the Catholic Church had such a stronghold on society here for so many years. Things yeah. are changing. We saw that last year with the, uh, the vote for same-sex marriage. There's uh, still a very contentious debate over the issue of abortion and repealing the Eighth Amendment here in this country. And yet, uh, you know, the the Catholic organisations will say that they are persecuted and they are uh, vilified and attacked any time that they voice their opinion and and try to get their point across. What's your your view on that? 
I mean, they will, religious groups will always claim victimhood. This goes not just for the Catholic Church, but across the board. And I think that we have to disregard that because, frankly, not only should they be accountable for their beliefs, <clears throat> but they're trying to impose their beliefs on other people. Uh, the Catholic Church in Ireland is a prime example of this, standing against not only, uh, as you pointed out, standing against abortion, which I think uh, it, it, it's appalling that Ireland still has uh, laws banning abortion and that women have to come over to, to England to get an abortion. But also, again, on these blasphemy laws, it always protects the, the, the establishment. It always uh, works against minorities. It always works, works against the most vulnerable people in society. And we've seen that even on social media, people posting something innocuous about religion or religious beliefs and then getting uh, criticized or even sometimes uh, someone whips up a hate mob against them. Um, and this is a direct result of sanction by uh, religious organizations by, from the top. And I think it's time we said that um, this is fundamental to democracy. You cannot have a state where there are blasphemy laws while also allowing freedom of thought uh, and expression. Uh, and, it, and it, frankly, you know, th- th- this is something that should be left behind in the 19th century. Very good. Journalist, writer and lecturer, Sonny Hundle, thanks very much for joining us on the programme. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, a new report today from daft.ie has found that rents are now above what they were during the Celtic Tiger years. Rents rose by an average of 3.9% in the second quarter of this year. It's the largest three-month increase in rents since early 2007. And to discuss, I'm joined in studio by Carl Dieter of Irish Mortgage Brokers. And also on the line is Margaret McCormack of the Irish Property Owners Association. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Um, Carl, I want to start with you. What do you make of these figures that came out today. Are you surprised? Not really. Uh, I don't see how it could end up any other way because when you have something like housing, which everybody needs, and then suddenly you stop building any of it, and even though we're always told about all these empty homes, you, you know, they're just clearly not in the places that we need them. And then you've got things like a recovering uh, economy. You know, We added 56,000 jobs in the last 12 months. People have to live somewhere. They're getting jobs somewhere. So it's just a frustrating thing because if this was any other resource, you'd just move it from wherever it is to wherever you need it. Obviously, you can't do that with a house, though. And then you have things where people are trying to make these you know, strategic changes like Alan Kelly's rent control move last year. Mm. And the property market is like a game of chess. It's a, it's a complicated thing. But then you've got people approaching it like a game of snap where every card in the deck is the two of hearts. And it's just a moronic way of doing things. You know, Everyone knows rent controls make rents go up. So everybody who has a rented property now is sitting pretty because they're protected by these great rules. But it's everyone who, who doesn't and everyone who's coming in is going to get front-loaded rent increases. And, and this is exactly what's to be expected when you make bad choices. Uh, Margaret McCormack of the Irish Property Owners Association, you're sitting pretty uh, and you have all the, 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 the cards in your hand, according to Carl <coughs> Dieter. Good afternoon, Dara, uh, and to Carl. I wouldn't actually say that now. Um, rent Carl didn't say that either, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, rents won't. Uh, rents are high. There, there's no uh, two ways about it. Rents are very high. But the problem is that the cost of providing accommodation is also high. And although um, accommodation went down over the period of time uh, during the um, poor time of our our recent past, we the cost for us for providing rental accommodation actually increased, and it increased. What, what, give us a breakdown of some of those costs, then, Margaret, because for somebody who's looking desperately for rental accommodation and seeing the prices just go up and up and up and up, and you know properties that they would like to rent, properties that are in the area they want to rent, are rapidly becoming out of their reach. So, give us a breakdown of some of the costs that landlords have to to factor in and have to bear. <clears throat> Will you start off with with a mortgage? So so you have to buy to pay your your mortgage interest and and also you have to pay your capital back to the bank. But then there's advertising costs, um, there's management costs, 
checking references, putting, uh, showing properties, cleaning, gardening, decorating, repair, maintenance, insurance. Um, and then there's the compliance cost of complying with, with you know, um, the, the Residential Tenancies Act, which is particularly complex, housing standards, uh, rent book regulations, Equal Status Act, then uh, acts, then you've also got to put together your accounts and put them all into revenue. So they're all costs that are there, there on a continual basis on your property. But what happened with um, during the downturn was that revenue, or not revenue, the, the state at the time changed the rules around investing in property after people had invested in them. So they reduced down mortgage interest allowable. Previously, you were allowed to offset uh, 100% of the interest of your mortgage. The money you have to pay back to the bank, um, you you were allowed to offset 100% of that as an expense. Um, and that was the money used for borrowing. Not your capital repayment. The capital repayment was a separate issue. You cannot offset your capital repayment. So they reduced down the mortgage interest to 75%. And in doing that, that means 25% of the money that is given out, you have physically paid it out to the bank, is classed by revenue as income mm. and taxed accordingly. And then they brought in other things. like the, the, the um, Universal social charge yeah, would be a, a big one. And yeah. even the weird thing is, well, like, without sending everyone to sleep talking about taxes... In effect, the government will take about half uh, or more. And universal social charge, even if you've been carrying losses for years, comes out before you can apply your losses. The fascinating thing, though, which a lot of people don't understand, and it doesn't apply in a lot of circumstances, but the fact that it exists blows my head away, is that when you're renting out property to an individual as a resident, you can actually have a tax bill of greater than 100%. That's just, to me, is just an amazing thing. How? Because what happens is... Uh, your tax bill can be greater than 100 because say, for instance, you calculate your profits down to be about 100 euro. You're ab- actually at break even. Now, you'll already be at a cash flow loss. You then have property tax, which is a tax that you have to pay and you can't offset. And that's how your tax bill gets above 100%. Mm. But the fact that that can exist in Irish law, to me, it's just astounding because no matter about what you say, oh, tax the rich or tax whoever you want, you know, don't tax me, tax the guy behind the tree. We can all have this great conversation about loads of things that is just don't make any sense. That, to me, is just a wildly yes, erratic it, fact. It just makes no sense. How can you tax somebody in a loss-making situation? You have to have profit to tax. Yeah, and, and the government. W- then one, you can do whatever you want. Well, I, I, we'll come back to that in a second. Paul Burke in Dublin has texted in to say, of course <laughs> rents are booming. Dublin is booming. I didn't hear uh, whingers when rents fell 40% between 2008 and 2012. Landlords are paying 60% tax. At least the revenue are the big winners here. So, Margaret, is that part of this problem or is that compounding this problem? Carla's identified a lack of supply and a lack of building. But is it also that landlords, because of this squeeze and tightening by revenue, um, that they're just getting out of uh, getting out of, of, of the rental sector altogether. That's absolutely it. We, we know that 40,000 landlords have left between 2012 and 2015. We know 30% of all landlords that um, want to leave the sector. I mean, a sector, we need to be encouraging investment. We need to be putting confidence into people and, and stability in, in, in Ireland so that people want to invest. And if people want to invest, then they will invest and then there'll be more property. And then supply and demand evens out and it, it will mean that there'll be enough property for anybody that needs it. So we need the, the government actually to encourage investment in, in, in property full stop, but in, in the private rental sector. OK, and, and just come back, you touched on it, uh, Carl Dieter from Irish Mortgage Brokers. Alan Kelly, uh, when he was minister with the, in this brief last year, announced rent certainty measures. You, you both seem to both, both yourself and Margaret seem to be pointing a finger at the government here. Alan Kelly, I mean, he himself admitted it wasn't the panacea, it wasn't going to, to cure it all, but he, he maintained it was a very effective measure and that we would see results from it. And yet here we are, only a couple of months later, and rents have spiked. So what was wrong with, with the approach he took? The approach he took is what was wrong with the approach he took. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Look at the results. Duh. I mean, Alan Kelly doesn't have to worry about this. He's not a renter. He lives in a house that he owns. And he's talking about saving people where he only helped the ones who were already in the system ensure that everyone else who had to get in that lifeboat got shafted in the process. There is no what if or about this. 
He made a bad choice and loads of people are paying the price. And there, But there had been discussions in advance about rent certainty and... Uh, and, and That's just... Can I just but stop that was using re- that word? That is such a, a plonker thing to say. Rent certainty is just dressed up nonsense for the politically correct way of talking about rent controls. And people say, oh, no, no, we're not talking about that. Oh, because that's the, you know, the big elephant in the room that we can't mention. When you start to set prices for someone else, that is called a controlling mechanism. It's called rent control, and it doesn't work. Almost every economist in the world actually agrees on this, minus a few who probably got their PhD from, I don't know, halfway up a boring mountain somewhere. The fact is, it was a bad choice. It didn't work. It hasn't worked. These are the results. So just call it what it is. It's just a failed choice and it didn't work out. And so what should be done then? I'll, Margaret, I'll come to you on this in a moment. But, but, but Carl, what should be done? What, what can be done? Or, or can anything be done? Is any sort of tinkering going to have uh, a, a negative effect that may outweigh any positive short-term effect that it may have? All I can say with certainty, Tara, and I, I don't mean it as a, as a way of not answering the question, is I've, I've studied this for a long and hard time. I know more and more about less and less. I actually am the master of everything about nothing at all at this point. I have no clue what can be done. I think it's going to be total chaos for a while, and then we're going to muddle our way through. Somehow things will start to work out. I have much more confidence in the present Minister of Housing, uh, and I'm just hopeful that, that enough things will start to occur that this gets solved. But if you're looking for a silver bullet, I'm not your guy for that. I'm just not bright enough. Someone else out there with better sense and PhDs should should really be answering that question. <laughs> Margaret McCormick maybe. of the Irish Property Owners, can you shed any light on this? Oh, I, I'll say first that, that there is absolutely no cost certainty in, in the situation. So rent certainty is, is an impossibility. I mean, all it will do is reduce, um, if they bring in rent control, it will reduce accommodation. What they can do, um, they need to protect the existing supply of accommodation. That's our existing landlords, our existing people in in place. Uh, they need to, to protect, obviously, our existing tenants. To, uh, to do that, they need to put um, fair tax treatment in so that the people that are leaving because of it w- will stop leaving and that people might consider coming back into the sector to provide more accommodation. That will, that will help. They can also put incentives out there to, to refurbish existing properties. There's, there's a lot of property around cities that, that is... Um, unfit for habitation at the moment and needs to be uh, renovated to make it and to bring it up to the standards that, that, that would be required for people to live in. It would be a quick fix um, and again it would put more property out there uh, faster than rebuild our building property will. You'd have a bit of concern though about the long term ramifications of quick fixes and how we, we all seem to be very uh, very <laughs> fond of the quick fixes. Uh, I just want you to read a text Margaret from another person called Margaret. Did my financials last night costing me too much to keep my rented house? Unfortunately that means a single parent and her little one will lose their home as I can't afford to keep it rented. And another texter and it was another big feature of this daft report that we had today. Rents are rising everywhere but why are prices in Dublin so much more? All landlords have the same expenses across the country. That, uh, Carl, actually was a surprising feature, I think, in this staff <laughs> report, was that we were so used to seeing continuous rent rises in the Dublin area, but it's spread now. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I know the people from Cork like to think they're the true capital of Ireland. Well, when it comes to rent increases, they are head and shoulders above. I mean, they got an 18% increase. That's almost a fifth. Costs do vary. For instance, because property tax is market-based, the the value in Dublin is higher than the value in Leitrim. You are going to have higher costs there. As well, the cost of construction varies in terms of your compliance. If you want to build a one-off house out in Roscommon, very low cost. You want to build a one-off house in South Dublin, very high cost. Mm. Land prices are different. The whole area of of why we have these shortages is really just through mismanagement, uh, greed, avarice, and a host of other, you know, unadmirable things that we do very well here. But I think the answer to it, and, and the thing that, that no one ever seems to want to talk about, is that if, if social housing is truly a social thing, that we're all meant to be in it together, and we have things like a universal social charge, why don't we just have a universal property tax where every building pays a certain amount? Uh, for landlords, obviously, it has to be something they can offset because it is a tax, but where every house is putting money into a common pot to continuously build homes and the state can do that because there's always market failures at the very bottom of the market. 
But no one ever wants to talk about that because then you've got to be the politician who stands up and says, yep. I'm going to ask you to put your hand in your pocket. And that doesn't get you voted into the madhouse on Kildare Street. Yeah, no, and we've seen that so many times, not least with water. Margaret McCormack, though, it, it ha- and I do, I personally have a better understanding from listening to both yourself and Carl of, of the position of the landlords here. But it has to be said, some of the uh, rooms and properties that are being offered at the moment are... There's clearly money in it for some landlords. I mean, for example, we had a troll today. We found a bed share in Portobello this afternoon in Dublin. The landlord there was looking for €440 a month for a shared room. Three people already living in the premises. And I think he had three another three shared rooms all at 440 Well, income tax takes care of that, Tara, by the way. Well, let, let me let Margaret oh. respond to that first. Let Margaret respond yeah, I, to that. I, I would say that, that 60% or 62% of that will go straight back to the state before anybody else starts. So the state is the one that's benefiting on it. And then if you're purchasing a property in Dublin to let, or in Cork or Galway, you're looking at much higher costs to purchase them and therefore much higher repayment costs uh, across. In, in fact, for, for a lot of people, uh, we, we've been told that basically you need, you, if you're borrowing anything more than 30%, it's not, it's not sustainable in, in, in the cities because you just can't get the income in to cover so the situation on those is that um, in 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 life there will always be some people that will will charge more rent than other people, um, but it's new tenancies that we're dealing with at the moment, not existing tenancies. Existing tenancies, once they're put in place, they tend to be less than market rent because once you've got a good tenant and and a good landlord, they're happy to keep each other. Um, uh, so th- they won't keep bringing the rents up. So when you're looking at the daft report, you're looking at the new tenancies, not the existing tenancies. Uh, Carl, another obvious question in this is uh, relates back to affordability. And, and in many cases now, particularly after this further evidence of rent rises, it would actually cost less money for people to buy a home and to service a mortgage than it would to be renting at these continuously, it seems, spiralling rates. The central bank rules on the 20% uh, deposit required for first-time buyers, does that need to be revisited? Should we be trying to incentivise people to actually purchase property again? I am a huge critic of the central bank rules for first-time buyers in particular, not so much for investors or anybody else, but first-time buyers in particular, for this very reason. And we wrote to the central bank back in 2014 when they were talking about doing this. We said it was social engineering, that people with wealthy parents would do fine, and that it would ruin the savings effect and also cause people to have a rental crunch. This was all totally known. There is nothing new in this. They chose to ignore it and go ahead with an ideological response and bring in rules which have proven again No matter what your thoughts are on whether it's good or bad, they haven't worked because property prices still keep going up and it's just displaced price rises into the rental market. But the rental market is a vicious circle. When when rents rise, eventually that gets transposed back into property prices and those prices go up because the asset has a higher yield. So I am normally critical of them, but I'm starting to get to the point where I just figure even though I think they're crap rules, and even though I know from, from the business that I work in that people with, with well-off parents are the ones who are buying homes more and that the ones whose parents aren't well-off are not getting the homes or they're having to move you know, 40 miles away, despite all the bad things about it, I'm starting to come around to thinking maybe we shouldn't mess with them anymore because this nonstop approach of tinkering and tinkering and trying to find these perfect responses, like people need time for something to be a rule that actually means something and that lasts. It's the constant unknown future, the constant tampering, the new rules every three months, the new you know agendas and reports every four months. Like That stuff just makes it more confusing so that anyone who's thinking of doing anything has a huge wall of inertia facing them. And I, I just think that that's a mistake and that uh, you know we need to be pragmatic about it rather than romantic. So when people say, oh, that house is, is expensive, you know, it's a bed share. It's probably for a student who will be there nine months of the year. That price doesn't even matter. Don't live in Poxy Portobello if you don't want to. Go live in Tala and you'll get a place for much less. But being more pragmatic about it, you know, saying that we don't want to have height restrictions in the city because we've got a group of conservationists who are trying to plan a 21st century city based on Georgian Dublin that was built, you know, in the 1700s. Mm. And there was no planners back then, by the way, that worked for the government. They were just like planners that, you know, you were my mate and you did the plan. It, it, 
like the best part of our city had nothing to do with the way we do things now. And they want to make a city of the future based on a city of 300 years ago. Like it's not fit for purpose. And there's awkward conversations we have to have. And these need to be the kind of things that need to be yeah, discussed. Yeah, and indeed, Ibeck actually pointing out recently as well, Carl, that, you know, if we don't start going up, that we're going to lose investment because of it, because of the lack of space. Uh, Carl Dieter from Irish Mortgage Brokers and Margaret McCormack of the Irish Property Owners Association. Thanks very much for joining us to talk through this topic. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlanders seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, earlier this month, the government published the Fuller Working Lives report, which promised to look at how employers can make it easier for older people to work beyond retirement age. Now, many have criticised the report for not going far enough, saying it made no commitment to abolishing the mandatory retirement age. One of those critics was Justin Moran, who is Head of Advocacy and Communications with Age Action. And I'm delighted to say Justin is on the line now. Justin, many people obviously look forward to retiring. We've actually been discussing the issue around pensions earlier in the week on the programme. And lots of people getting in touch to say... Obviously, they're very concerned about what their pension pot may be, but that nonetheless, they're looking forward to sort of putting their feet up when they get to 65, 67. Uh, What makes other people, though, over the age of 65 want to continue working? Well, I I think a lot of people are looking forward to retirement and and to enjoying retirement and enjoying the later years of their life. But what we've been finding from a lot of our members in the last number of years is when people are hitting 61, 62 they're starting to really sit down and figure out exactly how much they're going to be living on for possibly the next 15, 20, 30 years of their lives. And in many cases, they can be quite startled by it. One of the specific issues that a lot of people have raised with us is they're facing mandatory retirement at the age of 65, but they are not entitled to state pension until 66. So that's a particular one-year gap. But even in general, it's primarily a financial concern that's motivating a lot of older people, but it's not the only one. Interestingly, when they did a survey in Britain in, in 2011, when they abolished the default retirement age there, they asked people, why would you want to keep working? And financial was the number one reason. But number two actually was social. It was about, it was about friends. My friends were in the workplace. That's where I like to go. I like to be active. I, and, and a great sense of self-esteem from continuing to work and continuing to contribute. So there can be lots of reasons, but, but primarily financial. And then I think there's a social element of it that gets missed as well sometimes. And... We have fairly tight, and I use the word fairly tight, um, workplace legislation and anti-discriminatory measures here enacted in our laws. So an employer can't legally discriminate because of age. So how can mandatory retirement age still exist then in that context? Well, to a degree, there, the, I mean, you're absolutely right that their DU framework directive is very clear about discrimination, both on the grounds of, of age, but also on the grounds of a number of other criteria. There's a wee bit of a legal loophole in it where it says that member states can treat workers differently on the basis of age if there are what the EU would describe, refers to as legitimate aims that are met as a result of this. Now, legitimate aims can include the labour market, vocational training objectives, things like that. European Court of Justice judgments that have come out of that have said things like, well, if an employer is looking to create opportunities for people who are seeking work or they're looking to encourage the recruitment and promotion of young people, those can be legitimate aims that enable an employer to force somebody out at the age of 65. Now, the the point that we continually raise with this is that all of the research, whether it's done by the IMF, by the OECD, by the World of Labour, says there is no correlation between forcing somebody out of work at the age of 65 and getting somebody at the age of 23 a, a, a job. In fact, the research suggests the opposite. The more older workers there are, the more the economy benefits, the more the economy grows, and therefore the more jobs there are for younger people. All of the countries with high rates of employment for older workers also have high rates of employment for younger workers. Now, I mean, why do we have a mandatory retirement age at all, uh, Justin? I, I appreciate that maybe when it was set back in the day, People weren't expected to live very far beyond 65. And I suppose, you know, it was a case of, right, you go off now and you have your time. But that, you know, you weren't expected to have maybe anything beyond 10 years life expectancy beyond that would have been the norm. Why, why, why was that essentially the reason there? Or was it, as you've just cited there, this, I suppose, misrepresented view that in order to have jobs there for a younger workforce, you had to foist out the older people? 
I think it was a combination of both, but, but leaning more towards the first, which I think is a critical point that, that you've made. We still have an approach to ageing in this country that is based on an image of older people and their capacity that's maybe 15, 20 years out of date. People may once have retired at the age of 65 and not have had, you know, may not have had a, a many years left. You Now people in their 70s, in their 80s, many of them still very active. I was just off the phone 10 minutes ago talking to a gentleman who's over 75 and runs cross-country. Mm. So there's people out there who are very, very active and want to continue being active in the area of employment. And I think as time changes, we need to realise that the health needs and the working life needs of older people change. So it's important that the report the government has produced recognises there's a benefit to people being able to work longer. I think that last bit is crucial. This isn't about forcing people to work till they drop. It's about giving them the choice to continue working if that is something that they wish to do and that they're able to do so. But we need to facilitate those longer working lives. The training and the awareness methods being proposed by the government are, are, are welcome, but they don't really hit the nub of it. If you can be forced out of your job at the age of 65 for no other reason than you've just turned 65, that's simply ageism, mm. and it has created substantial financial hardship for many of the people that we represent. Uh, are there any cases? Have there any cases been taken in relation to a claim of ageism in this circumstance, or, or, or could that be done? Or is the fact that there is a mandatory retirement there at all just preclude anyone from taking a case or challenging it at least? No, there, there have been cases that have been taken here in in, in Ireland. Um, Part of their issue with this, and one of the reasons this is appealed and brought to the legal environment, is that it has to be in your contract. Your employer can't just tell you, well, you know, there's a managed retirement age of 65, so, you know, two years from retirement, if it hasn't been in your contract beforehand. So sometimes that can be an issue. But probably the most high-profile case a number of years ago, um, the assistant guard, the commissioner at the time, a gentleman by the name of Donlan, was facing mandatory retirement at the age of 60. And, and that's also a point as well, that 65 is, is the age that's most common, but the employer gets to decide what your mandatory retirement age is. In the Gardaí, the Gardaí the Commissioner was facing retirement at the age of 60, and the, the reason that was accepted by the court as legitimate was to facilitate promotion prospects for lower-ranking Gardaí. Right. Now, I, I think lower-ranking Gardaí need to be supported, need to be facilitated to get promotion. I'm not necessarily sure that the best way to do this is to force experienced Gardaí with decades of experience dealing with criminals, dealing with all of the threats to society that we face. I'm not necessarily sure forcing them out is the solution. Yeah, I mean, that would go across various industry sectors as well. You know, medical staff, journalists even, you know, uh, you can make that case, I would imagine, for for a large number of of different types of career. I met a man today uh, who is well in his 60s. He has had suffered a little bit of poor health in recent years. He was saying under doctor's orders, he can't smoke anymore. He can't drink anymore. He said he's too old to have sex. The one thing he did still have, though, was his job. He was driving a taxi, which clearly obviously is self-employment. Are there opportunities there, though, uh, Justin, for people age 65 and over to find work? It, it can be quite difficult for them, for, for older people to find work. Uh, in particular, at the age of 65, one of the challenges we find is that many employers are conscious of the age of 66 an older person becomes available for becomes eligible for the state pension so that the financial, I suppose, motivation can, can drop a little bit at that point. Um, and I think as well there's a, a perception of older people as, uh, you know, as being unable to adapt to, for example, to, you know, the technical requirements there might be with the job in terms of, you know, having to use the internet, having to be online. These are all areas where older people can be trained and Age Action does that. We train older people to, to use the internet and they're as good at it as anybody else if, if they get that start. But I, I, I think what we have seen is older people struggle sometimes to find employment or if they can find jobs, sometimes they're, they're jobs at inferior terms and conditions or inferior salaries that don't necessarily make mm. use of their skills. And then again, we have success stories. We, we've, you know, we, we've age action members who set up businesses in, in, in their 70s. Sure. They're still going. They're now employing other people. Mm. But they've had to surmount substantial difficulties in, in, in getting to that. And, you know, it can be quite, it can be quite a scary place if, you're forced out of a job, maybe even there 10, 12 years, maybe even there longer than that. You're forced out at the age of 65 and you're told, OK, now you're to go on job seekers benefit or you have to find a job. You know, losing a job is 
you know, a very difficult circumstance, a very difficult situation yeah, for anybody. Course. It's even tougher for somebody at that age. Are employers missing a trick in that one, though, Justin? I, I, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, I, there's a name them, Marks and Spencer. Uh, I regularly would frequent their Grafton Street branch. They seem to have a considerable number of older workers and they are largely on the tills. Uh, and they're fantastic. They just have this innate sense of customer service. Uh, they're great with dealing with people. They're really, really suited to the roles. I don't see that in many other, and I'm just using retail as an example. Are employers missing a trick? I think another way of saying it is that, that some employers, like Marks and Spencer's maybe, are smart enough to realise there's an advantage here. You do see employers that do make an effort to try and attract older workers. I think that's one of the, the, the focuses of the government's report, is they want to highlight those benefits of, keep, of either hiring older workers or retaining long older workers, not just in terms of the, the, I suppose maybe the different culture that you get with a lot of those older workers, that sense of personal interaction, that sense of valuing the customers, of being willing to take time to get to know customers and build a relationship with customers, all of which, frankly, any business should be very, very happy to have in their employees. Mm. But, but also I think there's that benefit of retaining workers who have skills and experience, who are able to share that and to mentor and to train employees. And I think there's, there's a huge resource there in older workers that maybe many employers could be benefiting from if they were just to take a little bit of time and think, okay, Tony or, or, or Mary is coming up to her time at the age of 65. She'd like to stay on. Maybe is there something else we can do? Maybe she works a few less hours in a slightly different area and we ensure that whoever's coming after her has the benefits of her experience and the benefits of his wisdom. So we've identified that in many cases older people are in actual fact younger in their approach than they would have been a decade or or a couple of generations ago. There is clearly um, a financial positive in having older people continue in the workforce in in terms of the return for the exchequer. It's uh, great, obviously, if it's their own choice for the individuals that they get that interaction with other people, with colleagues, etc. And it's great for their own self-esteem. So what's stopping it is this legislation essentially how simple then or otherwise from a legislative point of view would it be to change it can you simply abolish the retirement age tomorrow or in a matter of weeks through through uh, the process of the Oireachtas well, well actually a, a bill was produced by um by Deputy Anne Ferris uh, a, a Labour TD um, in shortly before the general election last year that would have abolished mandatory retirement ages it would have made it impossible to, to impose them with a couple of exceptions provided for specific services like the fire service for example where there can be you know specific physical requirements that, that need to be met um, that bill actually received all party approval government and opposition parties united behind it it went to committee stage then a general election was called, and to, to be frank, it's, it's been stalled since then. So that piece of legislation is there. Deputy Ferris at the time was very, very happy to say, look, this is my proposal. If it can be amended or strengthened if there's, there's gaps in it. She was more than happy to, to deal with that. The committee, which also backed it wholeheartedly, was happy to have that discussion. So there's, there's a draft piece of legislation there, and if it's not perfect, there's a lot of people willing to work to make it so. Okay, very good. Justin Moore, Head of Advocacy and Communications with Age Action. Thanks very much for joining us. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, Tara Duggan with you on Right Hook Duties this evening. You're very welcome back to the last part of the programme. Now, back in June, a group of doctors and bioethicists wrote to the World Health Organisation calling for the Rio Olympics to be postponed because of concerns they had over the spread of the Zika virus. It didn't happen, as we know, and now the Games are finished. Can we expect a surge in the number of people presenting with the virus in their home countries? Or was it all scaremongering? Well, joining me to give an insight into this is Professor John Oxford, a professor of virology at Queen Mary's College in London. You're very welcome to the programme, Professor Oxford. Was the threat of Zika overstated? Well, I don't think the threat is overstated because, um, of course, it joins, it's in the same family. Zika's in the same family as two very um, threatening viruses called yellow fever and dengue. So, from the point of view of a country where those, those mosquitoes that carry the virus are, that is South America, Africa, for example, those, those viruses are a threat. But I think what has been exaggerated is their potential to move either out of Brazil or um, widely out of Africa. I think that's, that's been exaggerated totally. And you refer to these, this group of ethicists 
and, and academics who, I mean, there's 120 of them. Um, I didn't support that at all. I thought it was very antagonistic and very Ill, ill-founded um, to try and persuade people not to, um, you know, to pull out the Olympic Games. Uh, so I think that was very um, ill-conceived. But the overall, I would say this, that the virus is, is not an imaginary virus. Um, and in certain areas in South America, uh, particularly the northeast of Brazil, it is causing problems. But there is kind of good news with all this because um, everyone has exerted themselves. And I thought they would. That was my personal opinion about the Brazilians in the Olympic Games. They've got experience of these mosquitoes. They would exert themselves, kill the mosquitoes uh, and so on. And they've done that. And I don't think we're going to see a surge, uh, if any, of cases coming back in the next few weeks. Okay. I think I'm very positive about that. Okay. So why do people get so worried about it then? I mean, you know, we have to say we're talking about the spread of it outside of Brazil and, and we did see cases in the run-up to the Olympics of, of uh, cases of infection in Florida of people who hadn't been to Brazil. So clearly it had spread somewhat. But, but why do people get so freaked out? Yes. Well, as you're going to see the Florida thing, um, it, was, it would always freak out the United States. I mean, it's a very, if I can put it that way, it's a very freakable out country. People do kind of overreact. Um, I mean, they've had a handful of cases in Florida, but that's where you'd expect there to be anything. If anything's going to happen in the United States, it will be in the southern states, of Florida, Missouri, Mississippi, um, where they're not very terribly well organized. I'm going to say that, and they can say it themselves. Um, they've got the mosquito there anyway. So um, they've got all the circumstances where something could happen there in the southern and in the middle, um, you know, middle of the South America and in those middle areas, like all the islands and so on, um, uh, Puerto Rico and so on. But I think outside of those areas, there's going to be precious little activity. The uh, most recent analysis from a group of really high powered American mathematicians who can analyze these things, I think their estimate was of the 500,000 people or of, of no, 500,000. 500,000 people going to the Olympic Games from abroad, the maximum number that would come back to their own country, the maximum number that would go back to their own country with Zika would be 50. 50 out of half a million? That's around the world. That's around the world. So in Ireland, for example, you might have one. So it's it's that degree. But let let me say one other thing Um, about this, how people do get you know, to be over the top. I think it's very difficult both from both sides. It's very difficult from a virologist like myself um, and uh, to try and say, well, this is a very threatening virus, but it's, it's not going to go to, it's not going to come to you. It's very difficult to place that, I, I would say that. Uh, and so maybe everyone's very much to blame here, but something positive can come of it because amongst people who get a little bit scared are the politicians. And it's the politicians who control the purse strings and I noticed that recently, in the last week, President Obama has released $37 million to make a Zika vaccine. So sometimes from a little exaggeration, there definitely was exaggeration, can some, come some good things. And I think a Zika vaccine will, will be one of those good things, and that will help in the future. So out of half a million people who were at the Olympic Games, maybe 50 will return to their home countries with a Zika infection. Can it survive? Can Zika survive here, for example, in the northern climates such as Ireland and Britain? No, no. You see, it's, it's mosquito-borne. It's, it cannot um, get anywhere, apart from very, very, very few people who will get it by um, uh, having sex with someone who's already got it. Um, it's predominantly 99.99% of cases are spread by a bite from a mosquito. So you've got to have the mosquito in your country to get it established, established in the country. Um, and these mosquitoes, the Egypti, a mosquito does not like a northern Europe. It just doesn't. It hates. It just wouldn't survive the winter, so yeah. it hates it. So I think we're, we're... And the World Health Organization did a very good survey, a preemptive survey of the whole of the European nation, all the European nations. It picked out two areas only where there was a, a reasonable risk of something happen, happening because they already had the, the mozzies. That's uh, Madeira uh, and I think the northern part of the Black Sea bordering on the Soviet Union. So only those two areas. Everywhere else is... Either no risk at all or very moderate. And with some preemptive destruction of mosquitoes that might be there, say in the south of France or the south of, Italy, uh, the south of Spain, there are, there are these mosquitoes there. 
preemptive action to kill them will stop the whole thing anyway. Okay. So the fears, if I'm hearing you right, were somewhat overstated. Uh, There isn't really an issue, uh, bar maybe people travelling to those warmer climates, but you seem to believe that that people are kind of on it in terms of the destruction of the mosquitoes and and, uh, money being backed up to have uh, immunisations developed. Were there other viruses, though, in Rio during the Olympics, ones that we maybe should have been a bit more worried about that would have had less attention uh, shone on them um, that, that are do present a more legitimate concern? Yes, that's a very good point. Um, and I noticed um, there was a little bit of um, fuss in England about someone getting very ill with, with malaria. Um, that sort of infection is around, mosquito-borne, a lot of virus, but there's an infection around. Um, lots of um, dengue, um, and even in some parts of um, Brazil and the north, um, um, yellow fever. So, yes. And, and, of course, hepatitis B and HIV. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, um, I think those are more threatening than, than Zika in, in, in that way. And there would have been more infections with those, those other viruses than, than we're going to see with Zika, I'm sure. But that doesn't mean to say that Zika's not important. I think it is an important virus. And I would like to see a vaccine developed in the future so people can take sensible decisions. when they, It's not going to go away. If it's entrenched in the mosquitoes in South America, which now it is, whereas before it was only in Africa, it's not going to go away. And, and so it will be continuing uh, mosquito control. And let me let me add a, a very positive thing here. And I noticed this week in Cuba, for example, that's right in the middle of, an, of these areas where they're getting thousands of cases in the islands. They've got two cases in Cuba, and that's because they're very hot into preventive medicine, Cubans. They've got what they call a mosquito gun. They've been very active, active in killing mosquitoes. I doubt whether they'll get many cases at all. So there's an example of a country smack bang in the middle of the of the region where you could get problems, but they're taking action and they're going to try and prevent it uh, establishing itself in their own country. And I mean, let's not underplay the effects of the Zika virus, you know, for those parents and the children who were born um, subsequent to a Zika infection. But uh, Professor Oxford... We've had SARS, we've had avian flu, we've had swine flu. It seems every couple of years there's some uh, potentially massively risky health scare. Do we kind of like to buy into this? Is there an element of the hypochondria in us all that we sort of like to tap into this and be, have the bejays scared out of us? <laughs> yes, I think there might be, including myself. I mean, I don't absolve myself here to sometimes think, oh my goodness. I mean, just but just think back about this Zika. Just, just, just go back a moment. Over there. Remember, it's been going for 15,000 years in Africa. Quietly going around for 15,000 years, as far as we can go back. Um, we'd estimate that. And then suddenly, four years ago, suddenly began to move out. Now, why is that? Well, I think the thing is, uh, we move. Like, it's, it's kind of absolutely astounding the, the way we move. I was in Ireland recently. People are going off to New York, the United States, everywhere. You know, it's, it's a different, we're all in a different society than we were even 10 years ago. So our own movement will uh, bring us in contact with infections we've never even thought about. I think that's one thing. Uh, and then as the globe becomes more populated, that brings other issues, as it does in Brazil. People living in favelas, for example, where there's no running water, and so they store the water. And so these mosquitoes breed in that stored water. So they have to, if they sort out their water and storage supply, they'll sort out the mosquito, but of course they're very poor countries. So our own movement, our own sometimes disregard for basic hygiene because of poverty, um, and sometimes our own disregard for infection. And my own daughter, I remember, went to Africa. She didn't want to take anti-malaria drugs. She didn't like the idea, she said. Well, her companion died. So there needs to be a bit more serious thought, I think, when you pick up your cheap air tickets, go to these wonderful countries, do think about what you could get infected with. It's not hyper contract that, I think. Just one, just take some simple precautions and that will help all the situation quite nicely. Very good. John Oxford, Professor of Virology at Queen Mary College in London. Thanks very much for joining us on The Right Hook this evening. Pleasure.